In a recent survey, thousands of men were asked what they wanted more than anything else in their homes. Their answer may surprise you. They didn't say new furniture. They didn't say a big screen TV. They didn't say a faster computer. The number one thing that men said they wanted in their homes was peace and tranquility. I cut an article out of the paper this week. It was an article about Ricky Martin, the Puerto Rican heartthrob singer. He was asked what he wanted more than anything else in his personal life. He said, I want to find peace and project peace. But you know, as I read the article, I realized that he doesn't even know what peace is, and he certainly doesn't know where to find it. Because he was defending his new album, which features him posing atop a glass box filled with groping nudes. And here's what he said, I'm tired of all the criticism. Let's live. Let's get rid of the taboos. Let's start breathing. Well, he won't find peace that way. Because peace is not found in pursuing selfish pleasure. In fact, here's what God had to say about that back in Isaiah 57, 20. He said, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. That explains why we live in a day when peace is such a hot topic of conversation, but it's missing on the international scene, on the home scene, on the personal scene. Our day is no different than the day of Jeremiah when he said in Jeremiah 6.14, they are saying peace, peace, but there is no peace. So the question is, in a world where peace is conspicuous by its absence, what is peace? And where do we find it? Well, Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, that peace is one of the qualities that marks a growing Christian. It's the third character quality in the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Now, what does that mean? Well, when we talk about peace, we need to understand that there are three aspects to it. There is peace with God, there is peace within, and there is peace with others. And those are not just three parallel, unrelated kinds of peace. Those are three expressions of one and the same peace. They are three aspects of the same character trait. In fact, you cannot have one without the other. When you make peace with God, then you get the peace of God, then you are able to have peace with others. So let's look at those three aspects of this character quality. Number one is peace with God. You may not realize it if you're an unbeliever, but you are at war with God. We all start out that way. Romans 5.10 says we were enemies of God. Colossians 1.21 says we were hostile to God. We were in a state of rebellion. Our choice to do our own thing is in defiance of God. 
You might say that we have gone AWOL spiritually, or maybe worse, we have defected as traitors to the enemy side. You say, well, I don't feel like I'm at war with God. Well, you know why that is? That's because God is holding his fire. Have you seen some of these videos out of Israel? The Palestinian youths are hurling stones at the Israeli army and they're standing there holding guns. And for the most part, they are restraining from firing back. That's what we're doing at God. We're throwing stones at God. And God is patiently holding his fire. But the Bible tells us he will not withhold his fire forever. In fact, there's a sobering phrase in Ephesians 2.3. It says, we were children of wrath. We were children upon whom there were bullseyes painted for the targets for God's wrath. We at one time were in the crosshairs of the scope of God's shotgun of judgment. And God refrained from pulling the trigger. You say, well, if that's my condition, then how do I make peace with God? Well, you can't just sit down and have a peace conference with God. You can't just sit down and negotiate with God because you don't have anything to negotiate with. You see, if there's going to be peace, peace has to originate with God. And it has. Colossians 1.20 says, He made peace through the blood of His cross. When Jesus was hanging on the cross of Calvary, He was making peace between you and God. He was the peace offering. He paid the debt that you could never pay, and so He took care of your offense. He took our wrath. He paid our war crimes. But not only that, the Bible also tells us that He is our mediator. He takes God with one hand and He takes you with the other hand and He brings us together. And the reason He can do that is because there are scars in those hands. You say, well, what do I have to do? If if God has made peace... What do I have to do? Well, that's real simple. You have to surrender. You have to do... You've been at war with God. He's provided peace. He's paid for the crimes. You have to surrender. Now, you don't come to God and make a truce. A truce says, you stay on your side, I'll stay on my side. So you have to surrender. And when you surrender, what you do is say, I'm giving up and I'm going to accept whatever terms you want to apply. And you know what terms God applies when we surrender? Peace. It's spelled out in Romans 5.1. It says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first aspect of peace. It's peace with God. Second aspect is peace within. Now, you can't have peace within until you first have peace with God. When we get peace with God, then we get the peace of God. And just as we saw the last couple weeks with love and joy, peace is God's peace. Jesus said in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, 
my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Now, when we talk about peace, we're not talking about the 1960s hippie peace. We're not talking about something you get at the blue light special at Kmart. We're talking about God's peace. God who five times in the New Testament is called the God of peace. Jesus who in Isaiah 9, 6 is called the Prince of Peace has given His peace to you and me. You say, well, how can I tell if I have God's peace within? Well, that's easy. What's the opposite of peace? Well, Jesus told us in John 14, 27, after saying, my peace I give to you, he says, let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You see, the opposite of peace is a troubled heart and a fearful heart. Peace doesn't worry. Peace doesn't sit around saying, what if? Peace rests in the assurance that God is in control. Now, for some of us, that raises a question. You're sitting there saying, well, I'm a Christian, and I have peace with God, which means I have the peace of God. Why aren't I more peaceful? Why is it that the upright sometimes get uptight? You ever hear when somebody gets arrested, sometimes people get arrested and they say, we arrested them for disturbing the peace. That's a crime in our country. But it's not a major offense, it's a minor offense. I want to suggest to you that some of you are guilty of disturbing the peace in your Christian life. And we don't view that as a major offense, we view it as a minor offense, that's why we don't deal with it very often. That's why we overlook it so often in our lives. But let me mention three things you may be doing that is disturbing your peace. Looking in the wrong direction, longing for the wrong solution, or living with the wrong attitude. Number one, looking in the wrong direction. The world says if you want to have peace, you must go someplace, right? If you want to have peace, you've got to go to the Bahamas, lay on the beach, and drink out of a coconut. The world says you have to go someplace to get peace. Or the world says you have to buy something. There are some things money can't buy for everything else. There's American Express or MasterCard or whatever it is. I never get commercials. If you build that house, if you drive that car, if you wear those clothes, you'll have peace. Or the world says you need to ingest something. If you have three or four martinis a night, or if you get a prescription for a sedative, you'll have peace. You see, the world is over here saying, peace is over here. And if you look in those directions for your peace, you are disturbing your peace. 
Listen to the words of Isaiah 26.3. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. Did you get that? You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. You see, it doesn't matter if you're in the Bahamas or the boot heel. It doesn't matter if you're in a castle or a shack. It doesn't matter if you're in a Cadillac or a Pinto. If you want peace, you've got to look to the Lord. You've got to focus on the Lord. You've got to fix your mind on Him. When Peter was walking on the water, he was at peace as long as he was looking at the Lord. When he began to look at the waves, then he got fearful and he began to sink. Corey Ten Boom said, When I look at the world, I get distressed. When I look at myself, I get depressed. When I look at Jesus, I am at rest. Where are you looking for your peace? Listen to me carefully. The reason a lot of people don't find peace is because they're looking for it. You'll never find peace by looking for peace. You will only find peace by looking for Jesus. I like what John Wesley said. He said, when I looked to Jesus, the bird of peace flew into my heart. When I looked at the bird of peace, it flew away. You see, he understood that you have to look in the right direction. Second thing you may be doing that's disturbing your peace is longing for the wrong solution. Most people think that peace is the absence of things. It's the absence of turmoil, the absence of stress, the absence of problems. Remember the Calgon commercial? This woman is being bombarded from every side by her children, her husband, her employer, the phone's ringing. So she turns and looks at the camera and says, Calgon, take me away. And so we switch to the next scene and she's in a bathtub surrounded by bubbles. You see, that's the world concept of peace. It's getting away from your problems. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. You know what shalom means? Shalom means wholeness. Peace is not the absence of something that makes me less. Peace is the addition of something that makes me whole. You see, peace is not the absence of my problems. It's the presence of Jesus in the midst of my problems. That's why Jesus said in John 16, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Now, Jesus didn't promise to take away tribulation. Jesus didn't promise to take away your problems. Jesus promised that you would have peace in Him in the midst of your problems. I heard something this week that surprised me. Did you know that disturbances on the sea, whether they be hurricane winds or violent storms, never extend further down than 25 feet from the surface? They only affect the top fraction of the ocean. 
So what do fish do when there are gale winds and crashing waves? They just go deeper. I think there's a principle there. The way to experience peace in the midst of turmoil is to go deeper in your relationship with God. The storm's still there, the waves are still crashing, but when we go deeper, there's peace. Years ago, when the Korean government was a socialist government, the Christians there were being persecuted. And they came up with this saying, we're just like nails. The harder you hit us, the deeper you drive us. And the deeper you drive us, the more peaceful it becomes. We're just like nails. The harder you hit us, the deeper you drive us. The deeper you drive us, the more peaceful it becomes. They understood that you have to look for the right solution. The solution may not be to take you out of your problems. The solution may be to give you peace in the midst of your problems. And then there's a third thing you may be doing that's disturbing your peace, and that is living with the wrong attitude. Mark Twain said, I am an old man and have grown... I'm sorry, I'm an old man and have known a great many troubles, but most of them never happened. Can you relate to that? Have you known a lot of troubles that never really happened in your life? How many of you are worriers? We've got a lot of liars here. We've got a bigger problem than I thought. I think it's safe to say that most of us live with and accept as normal an attitude of anxiety, of fear, of worry. Jesus' disciples were worry warts. That's why he turned to them and asked them this question in Matthew 6, 27. He said, which of you, by being anxious, can add even 18 inches to his lifespan? See, worrying does not add to life. It robs from life. But most of us don't believe that. We kind, of philo- we, we kind of follow the philosophy of the guy who said, don't tell me that worrying doesn't do any good. I know better. The things I worry about never happen. Listen, peace and worry are mutually exclusive. You can worry and not have peace. Or you can have peace and not worry, but you can't have both. You know, our word worry comes from the German word that means to choke or to strangle. And that's the way Jesus used it in the parable of the sower. Jesus said, the worries of the world are like thorns that grow up and choke the word. That's what worry does. It chokes your faith in the promises of God. When you are worrying, you are really saying, God, I don't believe you can handle this. God, I found a problem that's too big for you. And God, I better take over. Evelyn Underhill put it this way, God works always in tranquility. 
Fuss and feverishness, anxiety, intensity, intolerance, instability, pessimism, and wobble, and every kind of hurry and worry, these, even on the highest levels, are signs of the self-made and the self-acting soul. When I am worrying, it is a sign that I am at work. When I have peace, it is a sign that God is at work in me. You say, well, what is the antidote for anxiety? Well, Paul gives it to us in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. If you just flip over there for a moment, I don't have time to go into this in depth. But Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. If you've never marked this verse, you need to. Paul says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Real simple antidote to worry. You are to take your cares and turn them into prayers. That's it. Take all your cares and turn them into prayers. If you want a simple outline for this work, this, this verse... First of all, he tells us the attitude, be anxious for what? Nothing. Stop worrying. Not not just some things, all things. The attitude, stop worrying. Second is the latitude. What are we to pray for? He says we're to pray for everything. If a care is too small to be a prayer, it's too small to be a burden. The attitude, stop worrying. The latitude, pray for everything. The gratitude, he says, come with thanksgiving. We are to enter his gates with thanksgiving. And then we have the promise in verse 7. When we come in prayer that way, he says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Verse 6 is your responsibility. You're to pray. Verse 7 is the promise of God. His peace will fill you. You see, when your life is filled with prayer, your heart will be filled with peace. We have a love that surpasses knowledge. We have a joy that is inexpressible. And we have a peace that surpasses all comprehension. And that's God's promise to us if we will turn our cares into prayers. Prayer is the antidote to keep worry out. It's also the key to keep peace within. And then the third aspect is peace with others. You know, when, P- when Paul listed peace as one of the nine qualities of the fruit of the Spirit, I think this is the aspect he had primarily in mind. And to illustrate that, I want you to go back to, Gal- to uh, Galatians chapter 5. In verses 22 and 23, he lists the fruit of the Spirit, but he contrasts that with the deeds of the flesh in verses 19 to 21. And I want you to notice what some of the deeds of the flesh are in verse 20. Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. What he's telling us is that the flesh produces discord in relationships. The Spirit produces peace in relationships. So he's not just talking here about an inner peace that is to stay inner. He's talking about an inner peace that makes peace with other people. 
And that's obviously important to God because over and over again in the New Testament, He tells us we ought to be doing this. Matthew 5, 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers. Romans 12, 18 says, Be at peace with all men. Romans 14, 19 says, Let us pursue the things which make for peace. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Pursue peace with all men. 1 Peter 3, 11 says, Seek peace and pursue it. We are to be pursuing peace in our relationships. You say, well, how do I become a peacemaker? Let me give you four steps. Number one, be realistic. If you're going to seek peace in your relationships, you have to deal honestly with the problems. And I think a lot of us don't do that. There are two things we typically do that are not peacemaking. Number one is avoiding the problem. Peacemaking is not running from it. It's not ignoring it. It's not pretending it doesn't exist. It's not sticking your head in the sand. A lot of couples do this. You say, well, let's just don't talk about it. Let's just don't make waves. You know, unresolved conflict is like termites in your relationship. If you don't deal with an issue, eventually it will bring the house down. Running from a problem is not peacemaking. It's cowardice. And then the second thing we typically do that is not peacemaking is appeasing the other person. Peacemaking is not, I always give in to your ways. Peacemaking is not, you're always right. Peacemaking is not, we'll always do it your way. It's not letting someone manipulate and dominate me. It's not becoming a doormat. That's not peacemaking. See, there's a problem when I decide I'm going to appease other people. Appeasement leads to resentment. When I swallow my feelings, my stomach keeps score. And that's not a healthy relationship. That's a sick relationship. Peace at any price is not legitimate peace. So if I'm going to be a peacemaker, the first step is that I have to be realistic about the problem. Second step, be responsible. I want to show you two verses. Look at Matthew chapter 5 to begin with. Because in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells us something about our responsibility in peacemaking. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Did you get that? I want you to understand, Jesus is saying that peacemaking is more important than worship. Peacemaking takes priority over worship. He says, first, go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. This is important to God. Now, when is it your responsibility to go to your brother? Well, Jesus says here, when you remember that your brother has something against you. So if you have done something to offend your brother, Jesus says it's your responsibility to go. Now, Keep that in mind and look over at Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, 15. 
Jesus says, if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Now, when does Jesus say it's your responsibility to go in this verse? He says it's your responsibility to go when your brother sins. Now, you put those two verses together and it means that whether you sinned against your brother or whether your brother sinned against you, your responsibility is the same and your responsibility is to go. You are to take the initiative. You're not to wait around for your brother to come to you. Whether you are the offended or the offendee or the offender or whatever other offender you could be, you have the responsibility to go. The ball is always in your court. You say, but Dan, he hurt me. Why should I go? Because Jesus said so. You are always to take the initiative because if you don't, the longer you wait, the bigger the problem gets. Peacemakers always take the initiative. In 1978, Anwar Sadat was given the Nobel Peace Prize. You know why? He was the first Arab leader to actually go to Israel. He overcame a 2,000-year barrier. Peacemakers always take the initiative. I'd like you to take a moment and just make a mental note this morning of a person that you need to have a peace conference with. Somebody, you got a barrier between. And then when this service is over, I want you to take your responsibility and go. Because that's what peacemakers do. And then the third step is to be receptive. When you sit down in this peace conference, the first thing you're to do is listen. Because you might learn something. Philippians 2.4 says, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That Greek word for look is skopos, from which we get our word scope, for a microscope or the scope on a gun. It means to focus on. If you're going to be a peacemaker, you've got to change the focus from your wants and needs and feelings and fears and doubts to the wants and needs and feelings and fears and doubts of that other person. Don't sit down and try to get your point across. Sit down and try to understand theirs. Now, I find this is especially true in marriage relationships. That's why we read in 1 Peter 3, 7, You husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way. How do you understand? You listen. I saw a cartoon where the wife said, I know you believe you understand what you think I said, but I'm not sure you realize that what you heard is not what I meant. Andy Capp's wife said, what's the point of me being on speaking terms when you're not on listening terms? We need to listen. Listen says, I want to understand. Listening also says, I care. See, we have to listen not just to the words, but to the feelings of other people. I find that hurting people often hurt people. 
And I have to get beyond the words to what's hurting that person to be able to minister to them. If you care, you'll be aware. And then the fourth step, be reconcilable. Whatever you learn from listening, you've now got to deal with. If it's something you did to them, then you need to ask for forgiveness. If it's something they have done to you, you need to forgive. You need to do whatever it takes to bring about reconciliation. Reconciliation means to reestablish the relationship. And when you do that with your brother or sister, you're actually just doing what God has done with us. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. God was in Christ. What was He doing when Christ suffered on the cross? He was reconciling the world to Himself. He was doing everything that He could do to reestablish that relationship. And then a few verses later in 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 20, it says this, He has committed to us the word of reconciliation as though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself and God is now in us begging the world to be reconciled to Him. Wow, this is important to God. What a privilege we have. We are in the business of reconciliation. We get to go out and tell the world that God wants to reestablish His relationship with you. In fact, He wants to do it so much that Jesus died in your place. And I'm out here to beg you to come to Him. But don't you think that sounds a little bit inconsistent? When I'm saying to the world, you need to be reconciled to God. And I'm not reconciled with my brother or sister in Christ. My words become pretty hollow when I'm not living that out in practical ways in the body of Christ. Do you have a relationship like that? Why not be realistic about the problem? Why not be responsible enough to go to the other person? Why not be receptive by listening to what they have to say? And why not be reconcilable by forgiving? Maybe you've done all that, and the other person won't respond. See, God understands that. That's why Romans 12, 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. See, God understands that because there are a whole lot of people in this world who have not yet been reconciled to God. And He's done everything He can do. The issue for you, if you've got a relationship that's not reconciled, is that you can say, I have done everything I can do. Have you got peace with God? If not, I beg you to be reconciled to Him. If not this morning, I beg you to wave the white flag and surrender to the God of all peace. Have you got peace within? If not, I urge you to follow Paul's prescription in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Turn your cares into prayers. Have you got peace with others? If not, 
why not do today what is most dear to the heart of God and be reconciled?